audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the Gospel of Luke. For more audio or information about our church, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Good morning. Can you believe it is already Thanksgiving week? Obviously, you guys can believe it. I can't. Um, I can't. Here's the crazy thing is, is we're going to blink and Christmas is going to be here. And I have, I have proof of this. As crazy as this may sound, uh, next week we start a new series for Advent. All right? That starts the clock. That means next week we're going to start turning our hearts and our minds to the Advent season. Um, listen, I have loved our time in Luke. I have loved it. I hate to see it kind of coming to a close. Don't worry, it will come back. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time, and I think we got through six chapters, so well done us. We will come back, though. Um, but next weekend, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, we are going to start a brand new series called The Trinity in Advent. Um, in this series, here's what we're going to do. We are going to look at a, at a doctrine that... that separates the Christian faith from, from any other. We're going to look at something that is distinctly Christian, irreducibly Christian, uh, so important. And also, we're going to be looking at a doctrine that's a little hard to wrap our minds around, in all honesty. Um, proof of this is for any of you who have, have small kids or have had small kids, you stand in a line of many parents who have gone before you who can attest, yeah, that one's a tough one to puzzle out with your kids. Um, this is, a, this is a, an important doctrine. We're going to look at the Trinity. Uh, and so here's where we're headed. It's four weeks. We're going to spend our first week, we're going to talk about why this is foundational. Why is the Trinity foundational um, to our Christian faith? Uh, week two, we're going to look, we're going to shift gears and look specifically at the Father. Week three, we're going to shift gears and look specifically at the Spirit. Week four just happens to be Christmas Eve, so no coincidence, we will shift gears and look at the Son uh, together. And in, by the way, pause, plug, uh, mark your calendars. This is the first time as a church we have celebrated a Christmas Eve service. This year, we have a Christmas Eve service. So mark your calendars for Christmas Eve. I hope you're able to join us. But having said that, um, Christmas Eve is a Saturday night. Christmas is a Sunday morning. We will not be meeting as a church on Sunday morning. So we will celebrate together Christmas Eve, and then we will celebrate as, as our families at home um, for Christmas morning. So just a heads up on that. You'll get more information about that uh, later. But um, so that's where we're headed. We're going to look at the Trinity. We're going to look at each of the members of the Trinity. And, and not only that, though, as we get into Advent, there's a reason we said in Advent. Because what we're going to look at is, is the Trinity, but specifically um, why it matters in Advent. Why does it matter uh, in, in, this, in this season? So that's where we're going. I'm excited about our time together in this series. I'm looking forward to it. I hope that you're able to to be with us as we turn our hearts and minds to the expectation of our Savior's return. And so I'm excited for this. Uh, cannot wait. But this morning, we get to finish our time together in Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can grab them. We are, like I said, in chapter 6. We're going to start in verse uh, 36 this morning. And as you are getting there, let me ask you a, 
a question. Um, how many here are judgmental? Wow, people raise their hands. That's, that's great. That's great. I was going to say you didn't need to because people are just going to judge you for it, but, you know, but I'm glad you, you raised your hand. Um, so here's some honest questions. Is it ever, as a follower of Christ, are we to judge? Is there ever a time when, when we're supposed to judge? Or as a follower of Jesus, are, are, is it kind of off the table? Like judgment off the table for us. Is we supposed to be open and accepting and put our judgments away? Are there some times when judgment is okay, good, acceptable? While other times, no, it is not okay. Is there, is there some people that we are okay to judge? But other people, no, you can't judge them. Okay, um, I am guessing that in this room, we have a- answered that question, those questions differently. I am guessing that in this room, we, many of us have answered these questions oppositely. And I'm also guessing that uh, no matter what your response was to these questions, that uh, your response was influenced by the verse that we're going to look at today. Um, the text that we're going to look is, at is one of the most, if not the most, quoted verses in the Bible um, by Christians, non-Christians alike. This is one of the most quoted verse, often, can I just be honest, misused and misquoted verses in all of our, in all of our Bible. So um, it's cited often by, by Christians and non-Christians alike, and I've heard this verse being used, the one that we're going to look at, for two reasons. One, um, it's a way of warning everyone to stay off my case. So if you're, you're feeling a little judgment on you, you say, don't you dare judge me, lest you be judged. We go, you know, King James on them, lest you be judged, right? Um, I've, I've heard it said like that. It's kind of a barrier. Also, um, I've also heard it used, Christians, non-Christians alike, alike um, as a way of affirming our decision to stay out of other people's business. So when you, you see maybe someone you love that's about to run into a brick wall, um, this verse is often cited as our excuse to say, not my business. I mean, I don't want to be judged, so who am I to judge? Um, it is important, church, for us to wrestle with this text. Uh, we live in a culture and a community where we are finding, I think you'll relate to this, where we are finding that many of the things that we hold to and stand on that the church has held to and standed on for, stood on for, for centuries, um, are being called into question, perhaps even rejected. And many of us here in this room are wondering, now what do we do with that? What do we do in the face of that? What is the biblical response to that? So this verse becomes really important to understand, and it becomes very important that we know how to actually apply it. So I'm excited to look at, at this as we dig down, down deeper. Um, I know this is a high travel weekend, so if you're a guest with us, don't worry, I'll catch you up. So here's where we've been. Um, we have looked together over the past couple weeks at, at a sermon, one sermon from Jesus, and he's commanded us to love our enemies. Love our enemies. And as Jesus defined enemies, he defined them for us as those who oppose you. Those who come against you to oppose you on account of the gospel. 
on account of, as, as Jesus says in his sermon, the son of man. That when they, they oppose you, insult you, hurt you, that your response to them should be one of love. We love our enemies. And last week we talked about it. We love our enemies because we know, church, that God first loved his enemies. You being chief among them. That we love because we have been love. Uh, we show grace because we have been shown grace. We give mercy because we know what that's like, and we've been, shown, we've been shown mercy. So let's jump in, verse 36. It says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. That's a good way for us to start. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now, with that as our foundation, shift gears with me as we continue in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to, to you. So here in our text, uh, Jesus gives us two negatives and two positives. Uh, two negatives as in don't do this and two positives or do this. And, and I want to start with our two negative commands here right off the bat because this is where the rubber meets the road, which is don't judge, don't condemn, don't judge, don't condemn. Um, remember that, that these disciples are looking in the eyes, currently, when, this, when Jesus said this, um, these disciples are looking into the eyes of a culture that is becoming hostile to this movement caused by Jesus. They have no idea what's coming down the road for them. They don't. But they do know this. I've already seen Jesus uh, facing opposition, even as an attempt on his life. We've already seen that. What's coming for us? What is coming for us? What happens when, when you're looking into a culture and they're hostile not only to the gospel message, but also, in this case, the gospel messenger? That's what they're, they're looking at. In church, for a quick moment, let's just fast forward, 2016, a little bit before we get any deeper. Um, we look into the eyes of a culture that is hostile toward what we believe. Some of them are just hostile to, to your beliefs. Others are hostile, hostile even to the gospel messenger. We look into this culture and, and, and Jesus tells us, don't judge. Don't condemn. This is one of those texts, um, honestly, that's a little more difficult to apply than it is to apply for others. You know what I mean? I, you're like, yeah, disciples. Come on, stop judging. Um, I wish my husband would hear, to hear this, you know. Or, um, you know, I can think of so many people in my life who, who could, you know, it's easy to apply this to others. It is way more difficult when we turn and, and kind of look at ourselves in light of this and, and don't judge, don't condemn. Um, I want to continue to drive this home just, just as a way of creating a foundation for us. Uh, and I want us to look at America for, for a minute, because there was a time, by and large, when, when being a Bible-believing evangelical Christian was a, was a pretty positive thing, All right? I mean, um, it's not frowned upon. I mean, they were good citizens. They paid their taxes. They kept up with things around the house. They were responsible. They, they didn't lie to you, right? So good, good morals. I mean, the, there was a time when, when by and large, um, 
we were, as Christians, accepted. Maybe for some, just tolerated. I don't want to paint a picture like it was like heaven back then, and now it's not. But, but at least for the most part, we were either accepted or tolerated, for, by and large. Um, and our values were not just accepted, but oftentimes promoted. Which is, which is interesting as we think about today, as we look around. Um, let's think about it. Now, although that could be the case in some pockets, uh, by and large, I think every one of us in this room would say, that's not really our world anymore. That isn't the world that I find myself in. And, and, and please hear me. This is not a we're going down doomsday America sermon here. Um, but I do want you to hear this. That by and large, in our culture, there is an attempt to separate God from culture. Right? I mean, we can all, that should not shock us as we, as we see this, as we, as we hear that. But there's a shift to separate. But sometimes what we fail to understand is not only is there an attempt to, to separate God from our culture, but there's also an attempt to say, we don't want your God and we don't want your values either. And so we live in this, this, we find ourselves in this world where, where our world tells us that not only do we want your God, but you know, it's not, we don't really like what you stand for. We don't like your values and we don't want you to impose them on us, right? This is the world that we kind of find ourselves in, um, which the reason I bring this up is because many of us, like I said, are sitting here asking really difficult questions of saying, I honestly love my neighbor, I honestly care for them. So what do I do? What do I do? Do I, am I silent? Do I speak up? Do I potentially make an enemy? That doesn't feel right. Like, what do I do in this, which is right where the disciples found themselves when Jesus looked them in the eye and he said, do not judge and do not condemn. Now, I want to I wanna bring out three things about this, about this command. Uh, one, this deals with what I will call horizontal relationships. It deals with human-to-human relationships. Um, here's what I mean by this. Our God is a righteous judge. Our God is the righteous judge. No matter who you are, when, we will stand before him. Period, period. Um, and this text, as funny as this may sound, is not giving you an out. Said, well, now he's not gonna judge me anymore. Like pulling yourself out of that. It's not, um, um, in fact, there's only one thing that removes from us condemnation and judgment and, and we're gonna, it's Jesus Christ, belief in Jesus Christ, we're gonna get to that. But, but this isn't like a, uh, a life hack, to avoid judgment, right? That's not what, what's being painted. And that sounds foolish to even say, but sometimes that's how we look at it, where, where if I don't judge you, God's letting me off the hook, right? That's, that's not what's in view here. That's, that's not what's in view here. Instead, Jesus says here, if you withhold your judgments and your condemnation, if you withhold your judgmental attitude on all of those who are opposing you, persecuting you on account of the gospel, if you withhold your condemnation from them, if you withhold your judgmental attitude toward them, then you're not gonna be on the receiving end of that same judgment. If you withhold your condemning attitude toward them, then you then will not be on the receiving end, the business end, 
of that condemning attitude towards you. Now, please don't hear me wrong. They most certainly will judge your gospel message. That might not make them happy, right, as we've seen. Um, But by removing your judgmental and condemning attitude, you are removing a barrier for them to hear your gospel message, for them to see the truth of the gospel. Um, Let me put it like this. Judgmental attitudes breed judgmental attitudes. Condemning attitudes breed condemning attitudes. And it's kind of this weird downward, downward spiral. And you know what's happening while we're downward spiraling? Is you have the gospel here, and all of a sudden we're over here just... Jesus says no. Point them to the gospel. Um, Don't distract them from the gospel with a downward spiral of judgment and condemnation. Don't distract them from that. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. Here he adds, put down your judgmental attitudes for the sake of the gospel. Now, the second thing I want you to see, and these are gonna build on each other, is this text does not give us the license of silence and doesn't give us a license to just conform, right? This text is not, um, I'll put it like this. If you're looking for a proof text, to, to say, hey, I don't have to share my faith. In the sake of not offending people, for the sake of not creating opposition, I don't have to you know, upset people on account of the gospel. If you're looking for a text that gives you an excuse not to do those things, this is not that text. You're not gonna find one either, but this is not that text. Remember, verse 22. Verse 22 says, you are blessed when people hate you insult you, count you as evil on account of the Son of Man, you are blessed. And then in uh, verse 26, woe to you when everyone around you just speaks really well of you. Woe to you when you are seen, spoken well of by everyone in your culture. We said this last week, but we have a truth worth dying for. And if it's worth dying for, it's worth standing for. It's worth standing on the good news of of Jesus Christ. So this text, in other words, doesn't give us the license to lose a backbone. It doesn't give us the license to lose our convictions. This is not that text. Third, this text does not give us the license to shut people down who are speaking truth into our lives. Uh, Here's what I mean by this. Um, When you have people you love, maybe even people in this room, who know you and care enough for you to speak into your life. They say, hey, I I see this in your life. I'm concerned for you, right? If you have people in your life who have discernment and who love you and care for you enough to speak, please do not shut them down with this verse. Please do not shut them down. Do not quote this verse and say, don't judge me lest you be judged. Don't. Don't throw this verse at them. Um, Church, not only, if we do that, not only have we missed the point of this verse, but you're robbing yourself of one of the greatest blessings in your life. Church, God works on us. And oftentimes, the tools that he uses are sitting in this room. And as we shut down people, we're shutting that down. Um, In fact, okay, let me give you a quick perspective. 
on this. Just a, just a, quick, a quick look. So the Bible talks a lot about Christian discernment. Talks a lot about Christians who have discernment, see things in other people's lives, and who are then called to act. The Bible talks a lot about this. Um, so let me just show you. This is an ugly slide. Go ahead and put it up there. Okay, these are just some New Testament places where what you're seeing is, is a group of, of passages um, filled with, the screen's filled with references that, that deal with Christians who are to see things and, and, and make uh, discernments or judgments and to respond in a faithful way. What you see on the screen represents that. Now, we're not gonna look into all of those this morning. Uh, in fact, this doesn't even represent all of them. This was just a quick search that I did because I started seeing them pop up everywhere. Um, in most of these cases, not only are we called to discern, but then we're called to act. We're called to do something with the discernment. Um, the call is not to silence. It's not to conformity in our attempt not to judge. That's not what this is, is driving us to. Instead, Jesus is speaking directly to the heart here, directly to our heart, directly toward our attitude. He says, do not judge. Do not condemn those who oppose you on account of the gospel. Instead, instead Jesus says this, Forgive and give. Okay, this should sound like a bit of an echo, right? This should sound a little bit like an echo here because verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Verse 29, uh, to those who backhand you on the cheek, you give them the other one, who those who steal your cloak, you offer your tunic, right? Um, verse 30, give to everyone who begs you. And to the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And when you do this, your reward will be great. So this is kind of like an echo of what we've already, of what we've already seen. And, and, and Jesus just drives this home. He drives this home. And when we have people in our life that oppose us, that, that come against us, that oppose us on account of the gospel, when that happens, we remember how much we have been forgiven and we forgive. When that happens, we remember how much we've been given and we give. Again, church, our goal, we talked about this last week, our grand goal is to make disciples is to make disciples that all, that all would hear, that all would respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. That is our mission. That's where we are going. And when we get that, hear me, we do not let their wrongdoing get in the way of that. So we forgive. If that's our goal, then we don't allow any material thing or, or thing that we have, we don't let anything get in the way of that. So we give. This is a call to consider our enemies as greater than ourselves and to lay ourselves down so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That is the mission. And when you do this, it says, it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. What is that? If you're anything like me, you're like, what is being poured into my lap? Like, is this a good thing? What, what, what is going on here? Um, 
The imagery here is, is rich. This is talking about gathering grain. So what you would do is you'd bend down, you would gather grain, you'd shake it up, press it in a container, right? And, and in this verse is even after you've shaken it, pressed it, right? It's still overflowing. This is abundance. And, and this whole in your lap thing, when you would bend down, if you're wearing the apron, you would, you would bend down and you would be gathering your grain. If it's overflowing, guess where it's going? It's all in your lap. It's in that pocket that your apron makes when you're bending down. And so when you're bending down, collecting this, it's overflowing. This is abundance. This is just absolute and complete abundance. And Jesus said, this is yours as you give. And again, it's just an echo of what he's already told us. Verse 35, right? If you do good, if you do good to your enemies, if you love them, if you give, your reward will be great. It's this promise for a reward that's not necessarily in the here and now, but it's in the then and later. But your reward will be great. Your reward is eternal, and that reward can never be taken away. And this is what's in store for those who proclaim the gospel even in the face of opposition and who love those who oppose them. That's what's in store. That's your reward through Christ. Now, Jesus is going to uh, paint a, a fun picture. He's gonna shift gears and he's gonna illustrate what he's been talking about. He's gonna tell us a parable. And, and we've said this before, we take the Bible seriously, amen? All right, some of us do. Now, we take the Bible Seriously, but there are times when the Bible is just seriously funny. If you don't see humor in this, I think you've missed it. Listen to the story Jesus paints, and I just want you to visualize it, all right? So uh, he told them a parable, verse 39. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? It's a funny visual, <laughs> that is. He continues, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do, we, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me help you, let me, let me take out that speck from, that's in your eye, when you yourself do not even see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So there's a visual. You got logs coming out of your, your eyes, right? There's a visual for you. What I love about this parable, and I bet you, Every one of us is gonna be able to relate to this. What I love about this parable is that we are often the most judgmental. We are often the most judgmental in the areas which with, with which we struggle. We are often so judgmental on things that we're struggling with. When we see people struggling with things that we're struggling with, that kind of hones it in for us. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I wanna give you two easy examples to see this. One is from my life, and the other one is from the Bible. So if you wanna ignore my life one, we'll get to the Bible one. But here, here's where I see this in my life. Um, I have three little boys, and they are incredible. Three little boys, and, and um, they're each so different. My oldest, his name is Micah, and uh, if you know Micah, you know that he is my mini-me. Like, it's creepy. If you slap a beard on that kid, <laughs> right? 
would be creepy. Or if you watch videos of me when I was his age, it is just, it will creep you out. Uh, not only in looks, but in personality. I see myself in my son. I, I do. As he grows, I, I just start to see it more and more. He responds to things the way I would respond. He excels at things that I excelled in. He struggles with things that I struggle with. So um, because of this, out of all my children, which child do you think that I struggle with parenting differently? Micah. Why? Because we are so much alike. We are so much alike, and I catch myself parenting myself. All right? I, I do. I catch myself seeing his little speck, just seeing it. I see it. I see it. But that's just because I'm familiar with that speck because I got a log coming out of my own eye, and it makes me hone in on, on a little speck. Right? We are hardest, we judge the most on things that we are struggling with. Let me show you an example of this biblically. Uh, you don't have to turn here. I'm going to put it on the screen. It comes from 2 Samuel 12. Let me paint the picture of what's going on here. So in this story, uh, David, King David, just committed a terrible secret sin, right? He, he lusted after a woman named Bathsheba, found out she was married, called her to him. They had an inappropriate relationship, and she got pregnant. So here begins the cover-up. Uh, long story short, in order to cover his sin, he, he had this affair with a woman who was actually married to one of his soldiers. He has the soldier Uriah killed. Okay? So he has the soldier killed. Um, in this text, we are, we are fresh off of this. Uh, David's fresh off of murder and, adul and adultery. Like the paint's still wet. All right? Just happened. Okay? Follow me? And then we get to this. Uh, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, uh, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, uh, which he had bought and which he had brought up and grew up with him and his children. And it, it used to, to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. It's a weird relationship to have with a lamb, but we'll let that pass. Um, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then, after hearing this, of course, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then, verse 7, Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You're the guy I'm talking about, David. You know, David was so quick to see the speck 
in this made up man's life. He was so quick to rush in and say death penalty. He was so quick. Why was he so quick? Because he was rocking the log, right? He had it firmly in his eye. It was, it was there. He, he had it. And it made him judge so hard, so harshly. Church, how many times have we done this? How many times has that been us? Has that been our story? Uh, I want to bring this into context a little bit this morning, into this context. How many times have we been quick to issue judgment on our enemies? How many times have we been so quick to issue judgment on those who oppose um, us in, in the gospel? How many times have we been forgetting that we ourselves were once enemies? Forgetting that we are sinners. We, I'll put it this way. I, you know yourself. You know how hopeless you are apart from Jesus Christ. You know that. What right do we have to look at others who are broken, others who are messed up? What right do we have to look at them, others who are struggling, and pass our condemnation right along? What right do we have? It reminds me of 1 Timothy 5, that, or 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then guess what he adds? Of whom I am the foremost. Right? He says, in other words, uh, Paul says, Jesus came for sinners, and guess what? I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst of them. And, and Jesus reminds us, brother, um, check out the log in your own eye before we issue judgments on those who you see a speck. And so church, to my fellow log bearers this morning, um, to my fellow log bearers, uh, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He, he came to save sinners. He came to save those who have logs in our eyes. He came in other words, he came for you. He came for you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ reconciled us. That's your story. And now our chief mission, our chief goal is to point others to the salvation, to the forgiveness that we ourselves have experienced. That's our chief Goal. We're called to love our enemies, to do good for them, to bless them, to pray for them, to uh, give to them, to forgive them, to withhold our, our judgmental attitudes, all for the sake of the gospel. All for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want to answer two questions. First, do we sacrifice the truth in order to love? Do we sacrifice the truth? and all the truth, and nothing but the truth, in order to love? The answer to this is no. If we do that, we're not gonna have enemies to love. Right, in this context, clear is this implication, we are called to stand on the gospel. And when we do that, there will be times when people will oppose you, when people will come against you, and when that happens, you are blessed. When that happens, you are blessed, and you love them for the sake that they come to know the gospel. When opposition arises, we love our enemies. But church, we're not gonna have any, any enemies around us if we shy away from our gospel message. And by the way, Jesus warns of that. Woe to you. Woe to you. When everyone 
talks well of you in your community because it probably means that you have sacrificed the truth. We do not sacrifice the truth in order to love. And also, we do not sacrifice love in order to bring truth. We do not sacrifice love in order to bring truth because our gospel message does not allow it. It just doesn't allow it. It's an oxymoron. It does not allow it. Our gospel says hope to the hopeless, peace to the restless, healing to the broken, salvation to the sinner, forgiveness. That's our gospel message. Our our truth is love. And we who bear it, we do so because we have experienced the love of God found in this truth. We do it because we have seen of this love. And, and hear me, I, w- I wanna finish with this. So as we've seen the past couple of weeks, Jesus here looks into his disciples' eyes. In this tender moment, he looks into his disciples' eyes and lovingly reminds them, you are blessed as you live your life on account of the gospel. You are blessed You are blessed when you face persecution on account of the Son of Man because yours is an eternal reward. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Instead, love them who persecute you. Love them and do good for them. Bless them, pray for them, give to them, forgive them. Love them even when it costs you something because they are worth it. Do not be ashamed or discouraged. Instead, be bold. Be bold and stand firmly on our gospel. Be bold and stand firmly on our gospel if and when that means that you may have enemies. These disciples, again, hear these words. They don't know what future is in store for them. They have no idea what's around the corner. They don't know that every one of them are gonna lose their life. They don't know any of this. All they know is they've seen Jesus taking some heat and is this gonna be ours? Is this, what are they they gonna do to the people who associate themselves with Jesus? What, and Jesus gives them these words effectively as, as marching orders in a hostile world. When the world is hostile to you, here's your orders. Here's your, your orders. In church, um, Jesus here, is saying the same thing to us. Is saying the same thing to us that we should not be ashamed of the gospel even in the face of opposition. That we don't give ourselves over to hate, despair, discouragement, but instead we focus on the gospel and we love them. We stand on the gospel and we love them because God loved us. We stand on the gospel. We forgive them because God has forgiven us. We stand on the gospel and we show them mercy and grace because God has shown us mercy and grace. We stand on the gospel and we reserve our condemnation because now there is therefore no condemnation for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. And their church, it, it really comes down to this. And do you believe the good news of the gospel? Do you believe the good news of the gospel, that he came to this earth, lived the life you could not live, even on your good days, 
and died the death that was yours to die. And in exchange, um, taking your sin and forgiving you, paying your debt and giving you his perfection, this beautiful, beautiful exchange so that now we stand confident and get this, we stand confident as we come before God that we are his children. We proclaimed it together this morning through song. We are children of God. We stand with that kind of confidence, with that kind of assurance. And not only has this changed our lives, but church, that should drive us to share that with our neighbors, to share that with the people in our life. Also, this should sustain us when we do face persecution, when we do face trial. This should This should sustain us because anything that our enemies throw at us, anything that our enemies, that our culture throws toward us is nothing because nothing can shake the fact that we are his. Nothing. So we love our enemies because God loved his. We give grace, we forgive our enemies because God has shown grace and forgiven us. Say it like this, the only thing that separates you from the dirtiest of the dirty of the grossest of the gross sinner is the gospel. That's it. That's the only thing that separates us is the fact that Jesus saved us. And so we set down our pride. We lay down our rights. We lay ourselves down to make much of Jesus and to introduce as many as we can to the Savior who saved us. We lay it down for them because they are worth it. Church, let's pray. God, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the love that you have shown. That we just stop for a moment and we realize that we are nothing apart from the gospel. God, that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We stand on the fact that you demonstrated your love through the sending of your son who took our sin and in exchange gave us eternal life. God, we are nothing without that. Now, God, give us the heart for others. God, I pray that you bring people to our minds right now. That we may need to change our heart toward. I pray that you you give us a passion for telling as many as possible, as many as possible about the good news of Jesus Christ. Give us that passion and and send us out and let nothing get in the way of it. Not persecution, not opposition, not insults, not anything. Let nothing get in the way of our mission that you have put us here to accomplish because they are worth it. They are worth it. Break our heart for what breaks yours, God. I pray that when we leave this place that we, we cannot just go back to business as usual, but, but that there is 
there's just something we need to do. We, there's something that we need to live into. And I pray that for us. In response to Luke 6, I pray that there is something that we just cannot avoid any longer. God, give us the strength to walk it out. Give us the ability to understand, but then the boldness to apply. And all the time, let not one ounce of glory come on us. But God, let it all go to you. Because we are nothing without you again. Nothing. And so God, you receive all glory, all honor, all fame. Because you and you alone are good. We love you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.